Welcome to the Electric Wire podcast. We bring you news and views on the most pressing issues facing Wisconsin's electric industry from policymakers, executives, and customer and environmental advocates. Bringing you these discussions, we are the Customers First Coalition. Here's your host, Executive Director Kristen Jilks. Welcome to the Electric Wire. I am Kristen Jilks, and for this episode, I am delighted to be joined by a board member of the Customers First Coalition, Tom Content of the Citizens Utility Board of Wisconsin, as well as David Springy, who is the Executive Director of NASUCO, which is the National Association of State Utility Consumer Advocates. So we will welcome both Tom and David in just a few moments. First, I want to remind our listeners that the Customers First Coalition is hosting a power breakfast on the role of nuclear energy in Wisconsin's generation mix. We are hosting this breakfast on April 13th, which is a Thursday at the Premier Park Hotel in Madison, Wisconsin. We are hosting a variety of speakers who can bring a number of different and very unique perspectives on the issue and help answer a lot of questions about the role of nuclear moving forward in light of new technologies. I wanna give a special thank you to the sponsors for the Power Breakfast. Our energy density sponsors who are really helping us present this event are Fredrickson, a law firm which has a Madison branch led by Justin Chasco, who some of our listeners may know. Another energy density sponsor is the Nuclear Energy Institute. So special thanks to those two sponsors, as well as our All the Power sponsors. Many Electric Wire listeners know that we love an All the Power moment. The All the Power sponsors for this event are the Wisconsin Counties Association, Stafford Rosenbaum, LLP, and New Scale Power. Thank you to these sponsors and all of the sponsors at the Power Breakfast. You will be able to meet many of them and learn more about all of them at the Power Breakfast. We hope to see you there. And Electric Wire listeners, there is a link to register in the show notes. We'd love to see you. We're going to have a special table or two reserved for Electric Wire listeners. So if you sign up and want to network with some other podcast listeners, please feel free to join your fellow listeners at one of those tables. A reminder to like and subscribe The Electric Wire wherever you listen to podcasts and join our email list if you'd like at customersfirst.org as well as following us on Twitter at The Electric Wire for updates. I ran into someone this week who said that they look forward to the release of the podcast every month. It's the best day of the month. So I loved hearing that and I love the opportunity to meet listeners and hear from you, get feedback. So make sure um, I'd love to meet you at the Power Breakfast. Otherwise, stay in touch through our feedback form um, or there's even a new Q&A feature through Spotify, um, through the podcast channels. So feel free to reach out that way as well. And without further ado, I will turn you over to my discussion with Tom Content and David Springy. Thanks for listening. Thank you to David Springy and Tom Content for joining me today. David is the Executive Director of the National Association of State Utility Consumer Advocates. Welcome, David. Thank you. Well, pleasure to be here. 
Thank you. And Tom Content is the executive director of the Citizens Utility Board of Wisconsin. And as I was just telling David, Tom is also a board member of the Customers First Coalition. So welcome back, Tom. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Well, today we're going to focus on the role of consumer advocates in the utility regulatory process. And I want to start out with um, a question for both of you. I want to know more about your background, more about how you got to your organization and when you knew you wanted to start advocating for customers along your career path. David, I'll start with you. Okay, well, I uh, I started down this path about 30 years ago. Uh, I was in law school and doing a master's in economics and uh, that was the late 80s and early 90s and, and it was sort of this high tide of interest in integrated resource planning um, looking at energy efficiency and demand type products to meet consumer needs as opposed to continuing to build uh, generation plants, fossil fuel plants. Um, got interested in that and one of the graduate TAs that uh, I studied under at Kansas University went to work for the Kansas Corporation Commission and so I followed him there on the econ staff um, and uh, ostensibly started writing Kansas's first integrated resource uh, planning rules, which never ultimately got passed. Um, but after about four years on the Kansas Corporation Commission, which is the Public Utility Commission in Kansas, I moved down to the Consumer Advocates Office as an economist. Three years later, they moved me up to council because I did have a law degree. And so I spent 13 years as the council. Um, I loved every minute of it, was active in uh, NASUCA, which is our national organization, was president of NASUCA uh, from 2007 to 2009. Um, so always active, um, but but sort of just had a fascination with energy policy and, you know, really the public utility commissions uh, and, and that space and the consumer advocates that practice in front of those commissions are really so important um, and, and sort of invisible to most people. Uh, but but it's a huge impact on consumers and consumer bills and consumer lives and energy policy in the state. So very much enjoyed that. And then in 2015, the uh, uh, powers that be and the association called me and asked if I would come out to Washington, D.C. and run the National Association. So I've been there since late 2015. Perfect. Thanks. Tom, let's get a little background on you before we start here, too. I know I first met you when you were at the Journal Sentinel. That's right. So I I was a journalist for uh, 30 years or so. I worked uh and I started covering the utility industry, in particular in the late 90s when I was at the Green Bay Press Gazette, and then picked it up again when I was at the Journal Sentinel for, um, in the, and was just following this industry closely. But my connection to the energy world started when I was a kid because um, I was mystified by the long gas lines in the 70s um, and was really, um, actually did some, some, you know, in high school was trying to research future energy technologies um, like advanced uh, advanced transportation. Here we are with electric cars today, but but the, when there was a vision for all that. And so that got me that got me in, interested in the industry. And then Cub actually happened. I mean, if you think about journalism, I was writing for the people and now I'm working for the people. So it was a good, it was actually a, a an effective move for me. And when you think about it, you know, when you have in journalism, you need balance and in utility regulation, you need balance. So I, I, I think, um, it's good. I'm not an attorney. I'm not an economist. We have those on staff at our at Cub, but but um, um, I get to be the the chief mouthpiece for uh, consumers in Wisconsin. So 
Thanks, Tom. Well, we're glad to have you here. And I want to next get into just a little bit more about what is a consumer advocate. Um, and David, I'm going to start with you and you can kind of give us a, a broader look at consumer advocates across the country. And then Tom will come to you to talk a little bit more about your role in Wisconsin. Um, sure. So let me talk a little bit about <clears throat> NASUCA and who our members are. So our national association is the association <clears throat> of statutory consumer advocates. So if you think of a public utility commission, uh, they are a creature of statute. They are created out of statute and assigned tasks to regulate public utilities within each state. Uh, likewise, our members in some form are created or authorized in statute um, uh, and tasked with representing consumers. <clears throat> so we're different than just sort of a 501c3 organization that, that you know, has a, uh, you know, a particular uh, opinion. I mean, we are statutory creatures and we are assigned tasks by the legislature and those can change. Um, there are, we have 60 total members operating in 44 states. Uh, there are actually 42 states with statutory advocates, and there are two more states that have recognized uh, nonprofits uh, that, that perform the function and do get a little bit of support, but they're not created in statute. So there's still six statute or six states out there that we, we don't cover. And our members uh, sort of fall into all areas of government. Uh, a good portion of our members live within the attorney general's office. Um, some are independent state agencies. Some are in other agencies like Commerce or the State Department. And then we have a number of uh, agencies like Tom's that are sort of a, a citizens utility board that was sort of created and then recognized and, and moved into statute. So we have a number of those. Uh, also, some states actually have two. So, you know, you may have somebody in the AG's office that does something. Minnesota is an interesting example. Um, they, we technically have three members in Minnesota, one in the AG's office that represents only residential customers. We have the Department of Commerce that represents all customers. And then we have uh, a Minnesota Cub, which represents uh, residential, some small business, but has maybe a little bit more of an environmental uh, bend in, in terms of their operating. Um, so, um, but the consumer advocates that, that we operate, really our chief function is to go before, before the public utility commissions at the state. Some of our states go to the federal level at, at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We operate uh, often in front of the state legislatures when energy policy is up. And I consider, I think the simplest explanation of what we do is provide due process for consumers. We are the people that will show up, uh, bring evidence to proceedings, uh, argue with utilities, review things, put, put, uh, put expert witnesses on and try and convince the public utility commissions to do things that we think are in the interest of consumers. But most importantly, and this is key with all of our members, they have to have this one uh, uh, attribute, and that is they have to be able to take a commission order up on appeal to the appellate courts and to the Supreme Court. Uh, that is consumer due process. And it's the same process, the due process that uh, public utilities have. They can, you know, put on witnesses and, and, and appeal commission orders. And so, you know, I view us as the due process arm for the consumer. Thank you, David. I'm excited to hear more about how you do what you do. But first, um, Tom, tell us more about Cubs' unique model here in Wisconsin. Sure. Well, yeah, thanks, Kristen. The Cub was actually founded in 1979. It was created by the state legislature 
um, to implement a vision that actually Ralph Nader had, which was to actually have residential consumer groups in, in all the states. And Wisconsin was the first state to take them up on that. Um, Cubs evolved over the years. We're an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit. But through the funding support uh, and through the, the, the unanimous legislation that the legislature passed two years ago, we are the designated consumer advocate as the independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan voice of consumers. So we're at the table for all of the, resi the residential customers and small business customers and farm customers of, of Wisconsin. And so we're there to really, as David said, to provide that, that, that balance and that due process and to, to, give, to give the citizens a voice that they wouldn't otherwise have. A lot of this, a lot, the job of regulating utilities can be technical, can be wonky, um, and a lot of and and a lot of the decisions that get made, um, people don't get involved in those processes as much as as much as we would like. But we're there to make sure that there is there is that 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 the voice of of fair, for fairness, a voice for affordability, a voice for for the customer is there. And Cub is evolving because we, you know, we we because of the the, the legislative support, we were able to have um, Cub used to function with um, always hiring outside experts, and that was a, a long protracted process. That there are many more cases, and the things can happen so fast, given the the pace of the energy transitions, that it's it's important for it was important for us to be able to have an in house team of experts to really dig into these issues, and that's what we have now. Good. Thanks, Tom. Okay, so here's a question um, for, I think, both of you. What are the major differences between a nonprofit citizens utility board and a consumer advocate office that's within a governmental agency? You know, yeah. every state, every state consumer advocate office is going to be different because they are defined by statutes. Um, so um, who they represent is also a question you need to ask. Uh, some states are limited or some offices are limited to representing only residential customers. When I was in Kansas, the Citizens Utility Ratepayer Board in Kansas was uh, residential and small business. Uh, often attorney general's offices represent all customers. Um, and we have some offices to the state PUC, um, you know, regulates taxis and and boats and, and other trash trucks. Um, and so, um, you know, every state is really going to be a little bit different in terms of who they represent and what they represent. Um, I mean, the process is usually still the same where, where we, you know, utilities file cases and, and you know, we enter and respond uh, to the cases. So the actual job is different or the same in every state, but, but who you actually represent. So when you look at sort of a state statutory office, you have to stop and, and look and see what they are. Now, the Cubs are a little bit different, and there's some really sort of historical Cubs, like Wisconsin's kind of one of our historical Cubs. Illinois Cub is one of our historical Cubs. And they they hew fairly traditionally like a statutory office in the sense that they represent uh, residential small business in those. We have some newer Cubs, Michigan Cub, Minnesota Cub, um, who also do that, but they they also tend, you know, they have to get outside funding. And some of their funding comes from um, um, foundation work and and uh, they tend to I think perhaps lean a little more um, just by nature uh, towards the environmental issues and and um, um, energy efficiency and and those types of things um, but again across the board there's not a lot of difference between the offices now the the 
competitive states versus, or the restructured states versus the non-restructured state. Really, that's just a matter of scope. In a, in, a, in, a, in a traditional vertically integrated state, when you go to the Public Utility Commission, they have control over the utilities uh, distribution system and the generation assets that that utility may own. Um, in a restructured state, uh, the Public Utility Commission really only controls the distribution, the wires and the poles down the street because generation has been pulled away and put into a separate market. Uh, one of the challenges in the restructured states, and it's also a challenge in the non-restructured states, is that a lot of the decisions around generation and around big transmission lines get made in some sort of a regional process. So in Wisconsin, uh, you are members of MISO, it's the Midwest Independent System Operator, that covers you know the kind of the entire cent cent uh, central area of the country from Wisconsin down to Louisiana. For a state consumer advocate, it's very difficult to participate in that piece of the process, which is unfortunate because a lot of the consumer bill is the generation, uh, which is your energy, and the transmission, which is the, what's needed to get the energy to the local utility. And it's very difficult for our state offices to have participation in those sort of regional. So same tasking in a sense, uh, slightly different focus because of what the local state public utility commission may have control over. Are there organizations that intervene at the MISO level though? So the, there is yeah. the organization of MISO states and then there, yeah. the like the consumer offices kind of uh, often led by our Iowa counterpart, counterpart um, uh, actually get involved in in a lot of those cases, um, but but it's different than um, a different the a different uh, regional ISO the in the Mid Atlantic region PJM has a dedicated consumer advocate office for that for for consumers uh, in that region. And we're trying to get the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to recognize the need to have consumers in that process and to create that type of office in the other regional organizations because we, we need a voice there just like we needed a voice at the state level PUCs. Yeah, that would be a big improvement for the Midwest. And in some ways, Cubs analogous to the, to the more analogous than we ever have been to the state uh, consumer advocate offices because of the statutory nature of our funding um, the, now. Um, and and that's, it, it helps it helps us to remain independent and nonprofit um, and nonpartisan in this whole in this whole scheme and then in a purple state like Wisconsin that's critical um, and I think what one of the decisions that Wisconsin made when they decided to form Cub is they were one of the alternatives they were thinking about back at the at the time with in the 70s and the energy crisis and everything else they were thinking at the time of having elected public service commissioners and 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 that was another alternative on the table and i think what the decision was made and that wisconsin has stood by is let's not have elected officials overseeing that so and, and or, let's let's have this be not the per too much of a purview of, of raw politics and and in even in some cases of state attorney general's offices you can you can hear how the the direction of an office or the oomph of an office the 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 forcefulness forcefulness of an office as advocacy can change depending on who that elected official is who's overseeing them. I know that's one of my favorite things getting into this industry was that it was seemingly less partisan than other areas of government. 
um, as with anything, there's a, there's a little creep <laughs> in that <laughs> regard, but these things happen. Yes. Okay. So I wanted to circle back, um, on, on something I alluded to earlier. What are some of the key responsibilities and day-to-day -day functions of a consumer advocate? I know you're looking at utility rate cases, utility construction projects, and I just want to get a little bit better sense of, you know, what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, no, for us, for us, it's, it's really, we're, because we have economists and, and experts, it's basically look, it's, it's thinking about policy, learning from other state consumer advocate offices through webinars, trainings, dialogues, in dialogues with customers first members, in dialogues with um, other stakeholders. And with our settlements law in Wisconsin, the legislature has encouraged us to negotiate across the table from utilities. So, so we're in dialogue, direct dialogue with the utilities. Um, and so day to day, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're reacting to what you're often reacting because the utilities are putting proposals in front of the, in front of the commission. So it can, it fluctuates from month to month. Um, it's, a, uh, right now, this time of year, we're, it's somewhat of an off cycle, uh, because the rate cases for 2020 to set rates for 2024 haven't started yet, but, uh, but. And so, but it's going to be become very intense because we have all three, all five investor-owned utilities will essentially be in front of the commission this year. Three of them for formal full rate cases and two for reopeners. Um, and so uh, we won't be bored. But so, and so, but it is in this, in this off period, it's trying to see what new policies we can and ideas we can come up with. But then, then so much of it does tend to be reactive because of um, the utilities are always um, not not shy about putting new things in front of the commission, whether it's construction. We've had a lot of big a lot of active construction. We've had active on policy issues such as you know electric vehicle programs, solar programs, as well as as well as the uh, the rate cases, which are kind of the the bread and butter. Thanks, Tom. David, did you have anything to add there? No, I think Tom hits. You know, again, I maybe I think of it a little simplistic, but you know, I when I, you know, I was the consumer advocate in Kansas for 13 years and in the office 17 years. And really I viewed us much like a law firm, right? We're, we're the law firm that the consumers hired. We show up to litigate and, and you know, argue the cases in front of the commission. So that's, you know, the primary function is to, you know, evaluate and gather evidence and put it on, go to trial, um, you know, brief and, and do appeals. I mean, we are, we are that function. But, you know, obviously there's a huge public communication component to what we do, public education component to what we do. Um, um, you know, so we spend a lot of time on that uh, consumer intake. I spent a lot of time on phone calls with just the average consumer. You know, if they called, I, I would talk to them. Um, um, and then to some degree, not, not every state is as active, but, you know, we were very active in the legislature. Um, so, you know, the utilities uh, kind of across the border are one of the most powerful lobbies in any state. When you get to the legislature, they have a lot of power and a lot of money to spread around. Um, so we spent, or at least I spent a lot of time at the legislature uh, trying to uh, oppose or at least fix to the extent that I could some of the bills that were being proposed and some of the, the broader legislative shifts around rate making, some of which were 
Um, at least, you know, when I started out, the utility showed up every three years for a rate case and went away. Uh, but we've gone through this huge period where um, the utilities have, through legislation or commission order, put more and more things into line items on the consumer bill called riders or, or something. But what that does is it, it makes uh, recovery faster and easier for utilities. It shifts risks away from the utility management onto the rate parabacks. So there's been a, a sort of a huge transition in the industry, but we spent a lot of time in the legislature uh, focusing on what we consider bad policy, trying to get good policy uh, for consumers. So that's a, a very important piece of what we do in most states. Thanks. Steve. Yeah, and in, in Wisconsin, we don't have those riders in, in part because we have the commit the utilities coming back so frequently and keeping us busy uh, with the with the rate cases. But uh, David raises a good point. We 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 do. We do have to be present in the legislature, but you know the utilities have dozens of lobbyists. Cub has one. You're looking at them, um, and and so there's that there's that whole balance balance challenge there again. And then we also have as Cub, we're all still a nonprofit with members and fund. We do fundraising, so so we, there's a communications and outreach effort. And uh, one of our missions is consumer education. So that's that's another thing that. We we do talks at energy events such as the MREA Energy Fair or this Wisconsin Association of Energy Engineers are two examples, but but where we talk about you know ways to save on your and then we do neighborhood talks or community group talks on ways to save on your energy bills or policy talks. So it's a, it's it's a, we're never bored. Tom, you could even plug your own podcast and as part of your outreach efforts. Exactly. And then we started uh, not only webinars for customers, but then we started our own Cub Tracks podcast last year with Corey Singletary, our regulatory director, and myself, uh, weighing in on the issues of the day, so our issues of the week. And you guys are doing it once a week and giving pretty detailed updates about what's going on at the Public Service Commission of Wisconsin. Yeah, we th I think it's 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 a fun it's a fun opportunity to try to. Um, really help help explain uh things in in layman's terms to the best we as best we can so and and try to try to take take the wonky world of deregul of regulation and de demystify it shouldn't say deregulation because i was about <laughs> to say demystify right demystifying it is is the key um and because so much of this is is language that people aren't used to jargon people aren't used to and so the more we can do to try to simplify things, the better. And people can find the Cub Tracks podcast wherever you get your podcasts as well, right? It's on, it's on all the platforms. Perfect. YouTube, so wherever YouTube you're channel listening to this podcast, yes, go search for Cub Tracks as well. Yeah, so, like and subscribe. <laughs> nice. Along those lines, um, are there misconceptions about consumer advocates that you regularly have to address and how do you address them? I mean, I think historically there was, as a Madison-based nonprofit, I think there was this view that we were some kind of Madison-based nonprofit, you know, um, and so there was a perception at times that Cub was an environmental organization, which we're not. Um, our philosophy is to follow the data. Um, so we have professional industry experts on staff who, with decades of experience, who are who are analyzing analyzing things, and you know, utilities are coming up with proposals, and we, our job is to say, well, have you thought about did did they did they think about this? Are they overstating this? Are they understating that? Are the assumptions correct? It's really it's 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 it's, it's utility regulation is complex, and we're we're 
we're in the thick of that. Um, and I think I think that's that overcoming that misconception that we're is is one thing. And then the other I would highlight is that you know we're just going to say no to everything. You know that we're not doctor no necessarily. We everything has to be evaluated on its own merits. And some things some things will get a thumbs up and some things won't. won't. But I I think I think that that's 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 a that's been a misconception too. I think one of the things that we found so. I mean, consumers don't really understand that much about their utility bill. They certainly don't understand, you know, what the Public Utility Commission does or what the Consumer Advocate does. But one sort of deeper layer to that is that in any given state, um, um, you will have a set of, of unregulated entities. For instance, most municipals in most states, the so most cities that do utility work in most states are not regulated by the Public Utility Commission. In a lot of states, the rural electric cooperatives are not regulated by the Public Utility Commission. And for the majority of our states, the task is to practice in front of the Public Utility Commission. So you have jurisdiction only in those areas that the Public Utility Commission has. And I, I would always get calls from it was it was it was usually the 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 big municipal in, in in Kansas, and they were, you know, they put the swimming pool in the utility rates, right? You know, and they wanted somebody to do something about it. And it's I, you know, you had to tell them that I was really had no jurisdiction. Uh, to help them in that area. So that was always a hard conversation when consumers wondered why some people got representation and others didn't. Uh, it's sort of a democratic philosophy sort of question. You know, the assumption being, if you don't like what's going on in your city, you can vote people out. You can argue whether that's a true statement or not. Um, I think the the other challenge that I had a lot of time was explaining to people that we were not individual customer attorneys for the most part, we represented classes of attorneys, and that that would pop up in things like uh, transmission siting cases, where the transmission line and the need for it um, was good for all consumers, and so you needed it. Uh, but the particular landowners that the uh, line was going across always saw it a different way, and the, would wonder why we were not representing them. And we were there to represent the class of customers not individual customers for the most part. So again, having to, you know, once you exist, um, having to explain sort of the the caveats uh, to customers was sometimes a challenge. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think we don't get, we're not involved in the land use decisions either. And in the siting, siting is a separate issue. Um, we got involved in one of the initial big solar farm cases just to see, you know, to to advocate for certain principles because we didn't have like a state rule on how siting should happen. And in the case of the siting issues is, is just not part of economic regulation, essentially. And then in Wisconsin, on Dave's earlier point, I think that's it's important to note that in Wisconsin, the co-ops aren't regulated but the munis and munis are regulated in Wisconsin. So, so, and so we have gotten involved in some municipal cases, um, especially as the voice of the small customer. If, um, if a certain, if a significantly significant large customer in that, in that community um, is, is seeking to, when we get into divvying up the pie of who pays, making sure that the rates are allocated fairly between among the customer classes. Um, but I've gotten those calls too from, co-op members who aren't regulated saying, um, you know, what can Cub do about X, you know, whether it's a high, particularly high fixed charges, which is an area we've been focused on is bringing down the fixed charges so to encourage um, more, more of the energy to be on the uh, energy charge so that you, that it creates incentives for people to take 
take matters into their own hands and make their homes more efficient. Um, but um, the high fixed charges in the co-ops, I said, well, you're going to have to talk to your co-op board because they're not regulated by the PSC. And so Cubs role is limited there. Okay. I have several follow-ups. So, and, and encouraging efficiency and conservation by individual consumers can help all customers in a way um, because it lowers overall system costs, right? Just want to throw a plug for conservation right. in there. Exactly. Exactly. Our focus on energy program has saved you know, three more than $3 for every dollar invested in it. And the result of that is not just good for the customers who've been able to take advantage of that. It's basically pushed off the need for new power plants um, because of all the investment of all that investment in energy efficiency. Perfect. And Helps one other follow-up, we mentioned um, the electric co-ops uh, in the state of Wisconsin are not regulated at the Public Service Commission. The municipal electric utilities are regulated. Um, but is there a difference or a reason why you would tend to be more active in investor-owned utility cases versus municipal cases? It's it's right straight to the fact that they have shareholders that they have a fiduciary responsibility to 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 maximize maximize growth and profit, and so you, you get into the. The, the, the investor-owned utilities are always seeking the profit rates or the return on equity that that at at much higher at a at a premium, um, in our view, um, at a premium to the market and a premium, and that's that's what that's why they get so much attention is is that is that the municipal the municipal um, utilities are essentially serving um, their taxpayers as well as their members, right? So they're not going to try to try to have an exorbitant profit because these people have to, it's the same people paying the bills for taxes or, or utilities. Um, but it's a different, it's a, these are private companies that have the, that have growth plans that are based on build, 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 because the way, the way they, the way they're, the way the system works uh, too often is the more you build, the more you can, the more you can charge. And so that's why, um, that's why it's important to not only be involved in those cases, but also to try to convince this, the, 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 the utilities and the, and the state that maybe we need a different way of uh, incentivizing the utilities so that they actually, in, as in performance-based regulation, where you can incentivize utilities for doing, doing right by customers in the areas of affordability or customer service or reliability or energy efficiency, um, and not just have uh, have a business plan based on growth, growth, growth um, that that pushes up our bills. I think that's at a time of high energy costs that we're seeing um, in Wisconsin and around the country. I think that that issue is really um, pivotal. Thanks, Tom. And I want to throw in one question here about energy affordability. If you had to pick a, the top couple things you think would help make energy more affordable, what would what would those things be? David, do you want to start? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, obviously, in, in terms of the transition of the country to a cleaner energy service, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built. It's going to cost a lot of money. I mean, there's just no way around that. One of the things that, that I think that we need to have a continuing conversation with consumers about is how we price electricity service. Um, you know, consumers are used to having sort of a customer charge and then just a flat kilowatt hour uh, rate. Um, but we have to recognize that that energy to your home 
at different times of the day and different seasons of the year costs more or less. And we we need to be able to start giving some prices that give consumers an incentive to not plug things in or to turn down power when power is really expensive or when the system is really stressed. Um, you know, I think right now there's sort of a set it and forget it. You just plug things in, you go about your your day. You're not really thinking much about about prices. And so I think we need to to spend some time getting consumers used to that. And and the importance of that is is you know, 90% of the year, we have way more capacity than we need. Um, but we have to build for that one moment of peak, that one, that one, you know, period where it's super hot or we have a storm uh, or it's super cold, as the case may be. Um, and, and if we can't get customers to respond a little bit around those areas to take some stress off the system, we ultimately just have to build a bigger system. And so ultimately, one of the ways that we, I think, can can keep rates affordable over time is trying to get consumers to operate and use power in an efficient way and be more responsive when the system, uh, you know, needs consumers to respond in that way. Um, I mean, I would say the second part, it's a little wonky, but um, the investor-owned utilities uh, right now, um, when you look, I mean, they make money by putting capital in the ground and they get paid a return on that money. That's the model uh, they're getting, they're, they're making money. So they have a pretty big incentive right now to use uh, equity capital, which, which they earn anywhere from, you know, nine to 12% return on, um, as opposed to using debt capital, which is actually cheap. And one of the things that I've argued across the country is that if we need to do a lot of expansion and we need to spend a lot of capital, we should be doing it with debt. I mean, debt is cheaper than equity capital and it's a way to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish while minimizing some of the, the ultimate rate burden uh, on customers. You take some of that profit that is built into rates and you start minimizing that and using debt. I think that's a very important piece that we need to have a bigger conversation about too. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just pick up right there because I think when I think about it, I think about it like three forums for, for affordability. There's the PSC role, there's a the legislative role, and then there's just the customer role themselves. And I think when I think about the PSC, I think I want to pick up on David's point. You know, that's in our focus in the rate cases, it's really can we bring down those profits that are uh, much higher than the national average and also shift more to the debt side to be more affordable for everybody. Um, and then when it and and then when it those are those are big ticket items within the cases themselves. And at the legislature, I think it's just a matter of giving us the giving the regulators the tools to actually address affordability, especially at this time of uh, we've seen surging energy costs over the last couple of years with not only the investments in the trans energy transition as well as rising commodity costs. Um, what tools can we give the give the uh, the regulator and with I think of the stranded cost issue with the the retiring coal plants and the fact that we could we could be re refinancing a much bigger portion of those bills of that of that of what's owed so that customers so that utilities aren't profiting for you know another decade or more after a after a coal plant shuts down that's one example better planning um, and don't take away tools that we already have in the area of maybe competitive procurement for high voltage power lines. Um, so those are some ideas there. And then just on the customer side, I think so often we think of when we when 
for too long it was thought of what we thought of affordability it was we thought of it in the in the construct of an average price for the entire utility but what we've been working on in the area of energy burden is try to focus on let's take that focus and focus in on where on the basically the the customers who are struggling the most so um with with after our urging the PSCs now requiring the utilities to submit annual reports about energy burden that get down to the zip code or even census track level and then then from there can we can we have dialogues on where we can actually make progress um and really um it, for a lot of uh, for a lot of energy customers you know a, an increase of 6% or 10% in their in their annual utility bill is something that they can stomach but for folks who are cho choosing between you know groceries or prescription drugs and all these things that, that are coming at them it's real it's a real challenge and that's why we're excited to continue to work um and and glad that there's uh, more organizations getting involved from an from the low-income community to to really have their voice in some of these proceedings as well. Thank you for that, Tom. And that makes me think of just two notes. First, um, I was listening to the Cub Tracks podcast and noted you guys had weighed in again on increased LIHEAP funding, which is funding for low-income utility customers that comes from the federal government. So um, Customers First has been a, a big supporter of LIHEAP um, through the years as well and appreciate your efforts on that there. Um, and the other thing I wanted to note is that Tom is has helped me put together this podcast as well as we're going to work on a podcast dedicated specific, specifically to energy affordability in the coming months. So look for that soon as well. I want to wrap up our discussion on clean energy. Has the clean energy transition and state and federal goals and laws, has that changed the way you operate? I, I, I'll let David speak to the national uh, because there's the, the different organizations and different PUCs have different different focus areas on this. And I think I think what what's challenging is that um, you know if you're if you're a data-driven organization, you're looking at what's the most affordable thing um, from a from a customer point of point of view. If you're the customer advocate, and fortunately, the dramatic drop in the price of solar over the past five to ten years is an example where some of the interests of environmental organizations, utilities, and expanding their rate base and consumer interests can align. Um, but the challenge, the challenge, there are ways we can not pay too much, such as when we shut down those coal, those coal plants, um, try to produce as more as many savings as we pos as we po can possibly get there. But the challenge is, it's it's it can be somewhat of a bumpy ride because it's a it's a steel for fuel transition, as is what is what they like to call it, because a lot of the price of the of the solar is is baked in to these upfront costs of the construction costs, and we've seen some of those costs go, come in a little higher. Um, and then we've seen commodity cost pressures on on the coal and natural gas side um, hit us at the same time. Yeah, I, I would I would add that you know so there's there the the country is changing right. Um, I mean, it used to be, you know, most states or I think pretty much all states were were simply economic regulators. You know what what do you need to build to meet the actual load? Did you spend the money prudently? It's sort of an accounting process, um, and 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 you create. Uh, rates. Um, you know, now you've seen a big push uh, in, in a number of the, the coastal states, mostly, but you're starting to see it in the middle of the country too, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and some other places where 
they've changed the laws to add emission reduction targets. Very aggressive in some instances, you know, net zero by 2035, which is a super aggressive target. But when you change the objective function that you're shooting for now, you know, it used to just be like, how do we meet load? Now it's how do we meet load and do it with resources that are no longer carbon emitting or at least net carbon zero resources. That's an entirely different resource mix. It's an entirely different operation system. It's an entirely different set of investments that it takes to get there. So it's 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 sort of um, complicates the job that we're trying to do by orders of magnitude. And then, you know, you have states, let's layer on top of an emission reduction. There are states that have net zero emission vehicle standards, uh, like California, uh, a number of the, the states have adopted the ZEV, the ZEV standards. Um, a number of states have also added in to sort of the the objective function list, um, you know, equity uh, and, and environmental justice issues. So then that that affects sort of your processes and it affects uh, where and how you build resources. And so it really is, you know, and again, I've been at this 30 years. When I started 30 years ago, it was almost like simple math, right? And And now you're sort of into like, you know, differential equations, sort of uh, uh, level complications of trying to figure out how to meet, I mean, the utilities are trying to figure out how to meet all of these competing objective functions. And then us as the consumer advocates are also trying to figure out, at least in those states, um, you know, how to meet those objective functions and maintain affordability and, and, and reliability and resilience. And then you have other areas of the countries that, that, that aren't uh, um, statutorily driven in those. And so there's sort of a a weird clash of, of uh, I guess, philosophies and statutory obligations uh, sort of in the states that's playing out. And many of the big utilities are multi-state utilities, right? So you might be in a state that has a very emis uh, aggressive emission goal and a, the other half of your utilities in a state that doesn't. And so it, it really is just, I think it's it's all good. And and certainly the the federal initiatives and the money that's been put forth in the, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and the Investment uh, Infrastructure and Investment Act, you know, those are going to really drive a lot of change. And hopefully we can capture some of that money and use it in a way that helps consumers um, to, to accomplish these goals. But it, it's just a, a, you know, from a consumer advocacy standpoint, it's just a much more complicated world and area than we used to live in. So it's 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 interesting to watch at a national level how this is playing out. Yeah, it's it's really a different kind of calculus, as David said. And in Wisconsin, we're we we we're that classic purple state, right? We've got a governor who who whose office has developed that that uh, sustainability and clean energy plan. We have a legislature that is is more focused on you know pocketbook um, and we have more of that traditional economic regulation construct here. But yeah, if you look at the utilities that we interact with, with day in and day out, year in and year out, they all have aggressive carbon reduction goals. And and they they, they and and they're doing that for economic reasons. They see they see they see cost cost savings potential and also cost opportunities for themselves. And so we we that's where we have to have that intersection of of um, just trying to make this this transition um, as cost effective and customer focused as possible. Thanks, Tom, and thanks, David. Thank you both for the work you're doing um, on those issues. All right, before we get to our final question, Tom, you are gonna be on a panel 
um, at the Customers First Coalition Power Breakfast on April 13th. And this panel will discuss the role of nuclear power in Wisconsin's generation mix. I, I don't think we're going in with any predetermined uh, message or outcomes. I, we're, we're looking at the facts and, and the incentives that are out there, the new technologies, and just want to hear from a variety of stakeholders about the costs and benefits of where, where we're at with nuclear and where we could go. So I wanted to see if you wanted to give a little preview of the discussion on the industry panel uh, that you'll be sitting on. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to hearing, hearing the perspectives on the panel. You know, when it comes to CUB, we want to look at, you know, we want to look at, at how any energy technology stacks up um, from a cost perspective. So we don't prejudge anything. Our focus is, is as I said, on the costs. Um, at the time, you know, before I came to CUB, the, the legislature was going through the process of of uh, repealing our moratorium on new nuclear plants. Um, and at the time, um, we my predecessor raised those concerns about cost, citing the cost surges in the construction cost that we were seeing uh, for the, the plants, that, the nuclear plants that are being built in Georgia. Um, and just, and since that time, I think the, since his testimony, my predecessor's testimony years ago, those costs have gone up and up and away, uh, uh, much higher since then. Um, and so, you know, we want to ask this, when it comes to this, we want to ask the question, we, what is, is this the best use of customer dollars? And what we don't know about emerging technology is we don't know what we don't know. We don't know, is there going to be a super, uh, some kind of super technology for energy efficiency, or more likely, is there going to be um, advanced batteries where with different battery chemistries um, that that are able to do more longer duration storage? Whereas maybe the today's batteries technology is lithium ion that for everything from our computers to our electric vehicles to to the solar and storage battery uh, projects that are going to be built in Wisconsin. But but the long duration storage, which some of our utilities are already are re, are researching in in conjunction with the Electric Power Research Institute, is another thing is another element out there that has to be considered. Um, I know some of the media coverage on the small nuclear reactors has talked about how they are smaller, but when you look at the price the price and the price escalation for what's being built um, in Idaho. The prices are, you know, orders of magnitudes higher than, say, the the most recent coal plant built in Wisconsin, or even the 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 most recent natural gas plant built in Wisconsin in terms of cost per cost per unit of, unit of energy or megawatt hour. So, so I I think those are the questions we're going to have. The, the the waste issues are separate. There's always question. There there will still be questions on the on you know do we need a national repository that that issue has been around for a long time and is actually still unresolved. Um, but but uh, I think those are some of the some of the points that the questions that we're going to have coming in is like will other tech how will other technologies stack up and you know should Wisconsin be the be the the test case for for um, emerging emerging technology. Thanks, Tom. David, do you have any thoughts on nuclear you wanted to share? I mean, from a from an association standpoint, we don't have any policy on nuclear, so we're sort of agnostic. But I but I will observe a couple of things. Um, one, you are seeing a lot of states, as Wisconsin did, starting to, to pull back on those old moratoriums against nuclear plants. Um, so there's interest uh, out there building. 
Um, and I think most of that interest is centered around sort of the small modular stuff. I mean, I, I don't see a lot of people building a, another giant nuclear plant like they did in Georgia. Um, but, you know, we've been putting, um, you know, small modular nuclears on submarines and ships for, you know, 50 years. We know how to do this. So really, it's a matter of, I think, like most things, can you get the technology licensed and approved and can you get it operating at scale? So it's sort of like, yeah, you don't want to be like customer number one. You want to be customer number 12, right? Um, um, but but I think that's the challenge uh, going forward is can you can you start building the smaller modular nuclears at scale so your price points come down into something that is is more reasonable. I think Tom asked, you know, said all the right questions. If you're going to spend the money, is this the best place to spend the money versus some other technology or some other resource? But I also think, you know, as I look out in the future, 10 years and 20 years, 30 years down the line, you know, if we are in the process of electrifying the country and we're going to try and turn transportation electric, that's, you know, big trucks and delivery vans and, you know, Bob the plumber's van and all of our cars, you know, there's 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 going to be an increasing demand, you know, on the system to to provide power. You know, at some point you're going to probably need something like a small modular nuclear, I think, in the mix as a low carbon but reliable source of power. So, I, you know, again, it's it's I don't think you're going to see them. I mean, they're you're in the test bed phase right now, um, but I think if they can get those to scale, um, you know, I, I think that there is there is a place for them in the future. Uh, so yeah, we'll have to see how that plays out. Exactly. Well, thank you both for that. And now our last question that we ask all of our podcast guests, if you had all the power in the industry, what would you do with it? You know, that's such a tough question because, because, you know, there's, it is such an integrated system. It's, it's not like you can pick one thing and go, oh, I can fix that without a lot of other things happening. Really, I, you know, I think if, uh, well, you can attack this from a lot of ways, but but one of the big areas that I see as being just super problematic that I would like to fix, if possible, is just figuring out how we can actually build infrastructure, build things like transmission lines or even natural gas pipelines. We need to shore up that system, um, you know, build the infrastructure that we need without it getting caught up in a decades long um, fight. You know, I mean... Um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we're going to have because you know if we if we have any any hope of meeting some of the carbon reduction goals that that a lot of the states and uh, you know have put in place, you really do need to build some of that. You need you need transmission lines, both sort of local near term, but also to move uh, you know large utility scale renewables from the center of the country or solar from the southeast or or the southwest. You need to be able to move that power around and interconnect. Uh, one of the things you learned in Winter Storm Uri uh, two years ago uh, was that that being able to to move power from different parts of the country as a resilience and reliability measure is really important. We really sort of need to, you know, we need to sort of add the 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 new highway system, I guess, in a sense. And and those are very hard things to do. Uh, you, you know, crossing state lines, uh, landowner issues. Um, environmental issues, NEPA issues. I mean, there's a whole lot of very good and very important issues, but those things just make it virtually impossible uh, to really get some of the big projects done that I think, you know, from a national perspective, you know, this country really kind of needs to happen. Uh, so if I could 
probably fix something, I'd fix that. Thanks, David. What about you, Tom? Uh, this is always a tough one, and I'm I'm, tr I, I'm trying to remember what I said on the last last time I was on, so I'm not doing the exact same thing. But but I think one of the things that is so uh, striking is how rapidly the industry is changing, and how much this utility industry that was a pretty wonky thing um, for for a lot of us coming into this 10, 20 years ago. Um, how it's at the intersection of so many things. At the it's in at the intersection of of affordability, of environmental considerations, of, of extreme weather affecting reliability and all these things, and how it, as well as um, equity and affordability and concerns of, of energy insecurity, um, that I think we need to have um, more players in the room. In other words, it used to be a certain set of players that thought, well, I think we have all the answers. We can take, we've got this, we can take care of this. But I think it takes more people in the room um, it takes uh, and different and different voices than we've traditionally been hearing. And so this gets it gets me back to one of my core philosophies, which is if we can have more participation in these in these decisions, whether it's through stakeholder dialogues, whether it's through policy collaboratives, whether it's just through through public engagement with with energy consumers. Um, and it, my my if I had the power, I would demystify this industry and and put it all, put everything in layman's terms and bring people in so that because more participation in the decisions that are being made about how the energy unfolds is going to create better decisions for everybody and a better energy future for both the electric side and as we look ahead, the transportation side too. Agreed. Well, thanks to you both. For those of you watching on YouTube, you might notice that I have a different background than I did at the start. Thank you so much to Tom and David for bearing with us for some technical difficulties <laughs> midway through recording, but we got there and hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode. I really enjoyed speaking with both of you. Thanks for the opportunity. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Please support our work. You can subscribe to the Electric Wire podcast if you haven't already, and you can follow us on Twitter at The Electric Wire. Thanks also to the members of the Customers First Coalition for supporting this podcast. Our members are Dairyland Power Cooperative, Madison Gas and Electric, the Municipal Electric Utilities of Wisconsin, WPPI Energy, the Citizens Utility Board, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 2150, and the Wisconsin Electric Cooperatives Association. Thanks again for listening. We'll have a new episode next month.